As we pivot from considering Dorner and his influence on Bart and other mutualists and correlativists, it's time to turn our attention to the context of Bavink and Van Til, which in large part included a self-conscious polemic against Dorner. Now, Bavink and Van Til make a point that must be understood up front clearly as the backdrop for their doctrine of revelation, and specifically Van Til's doctrine, but Bavink and Van Til share some fundamental theological convictions on this point. I want to talk about the relation of the immutable creator to the mutable creation when it comes to the doctrine of the revelation of this immutable triune creator. Bavik and Van Til affirm something foundational about the Bible's speech with reference to God, his being, his works, his revelation. The Bible uses language and concepts, language and concepts, from the mutable realm of creation to describe the immutable being, works, and revelation of the triune God. Bavink observes that the Bible reveals the being and works of the triune God in the language and concepts that are taken from the created order. And there are numbers of examples. I'll just give you a few. Scripture speaks by way of example of the Son being eternally begotten by the Father, John 1.18. The Spirit of God hovering over the formless void, Genesis 1-2, or the sound of the Lord walking in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3-8. Uh, whether it is the paternal imagery of begetting that we're familiar with in terms of our creaturely experience, or the avian imagery of hovering, or the human imagery of walking, these images taken from the created order portray the personal activity of the self-contained triune God. Now, here is a point that has led a number of contemporary interpreters of Van Til and Reformed theology astray. Such uses of anthropomorphic language in the Bible, uses that portray the activity of God in the idiom of the mutable creature, risk this. They risk interpreting God as though the Trinitarian persons are characterized by space and time and change. In other words, the temptation is to say, if the scripture uses language and concepts to, deploys them to speak of the revelation of God in space and time, then God himself must be characterized by way of properties and attributes by those mutable and passable qualities. But Bavink representative of classical Augustinianism and Reformed theology on this matter, avoids all such inferences. 
He insists that the Bible's use of anthropomorphic language, now hear this, forbids ascribing change to God in his relation to creation. In other words, when God reveals himself in terms of these two lines, the, the mutable language and concepts, the idiom of creation, that language forbids ascribing change to him in his relation to creation. He puts it this way. He says, Scripture necessarily speaks of God in anthropomorphic language, yet however anthropomorphic its language, it at the same time prohibits us from positing any change in God. Now, this means then that the immutability of God supplies the interior theological rationale for all of the anthropomorphic language in Scripture. But that anthropomorphic language has a proscriptive function. It prohibits ascribing the qualities of the creature to God as though they were attributes of God or qualities of God. But then that raises this question. If the Scripture's use of anthropomorphism prohibits ascribing immutability to God, uh, mutability to God. If anthropomorphic language is consistent with and expresses the immutable triune God, what do we do and how do we conceive our notion of immutability? Bonnick says this, and this is key. Immutability should not be confused with monotonous sameness or rigid immobility. Hard stop there. When we're talking about an immutable triune God, we're not talking about a fundamentally monochrome, changeless, static, immobile reality. That's precisely not what immutability in the Reformed tradition and in Scripture means. He goes on to say this, Scripture itself leads us in describing God in the most manifold relation to all his creatures. And so when we think about God as immutable, we are thinking about the self-contained fullness of his life and activity, whether we're thinking in terms of eternal relations of procession or God relating to creatures in the missions, creation, covenant, incarnation. As we talked about in the previous module, the Trinitarian persons do not change either in their eternal relations of indwelling or in relation to creation. So, if you could put it this way, Bavink is saying the life of God, the life of the triune God, is immutably full and absolute in itself and in relation to to creation. James 1.17 is a wonderful biblical text. The Father, who gives every good and perfect gift to his children, does not change like shifting shadows. The personal activity of the Father does not mean he undergoes gain or loss, fatigue or change. That is Bavink's point about immutability. But he goes on to say this, there is change around, about, and outside of him. There's change in people's relation to him, but there is no change in God himself. 
Now, this is a point that we have made in a previous lecture. There is a change in the creature. There can be a change in the relation. No change in God that specifies the mystery, specifies the content of the mystery. But there's much more that we need to say now as we think about the doctrine of revelation, rooted in what we would call the general condescension of God. In Bavink's language, these two lines, without distinguishing them, these two lines are going to represent the condescension of the Creator to the creature. When we're talking about a doctrine of revelation, we're talking about the condescension of God to disclose Himself to the creature. And here's a formulaic way of putting it. Bavink says this, It is a mark of God's greatness that He can condescend to the level of the creatures, represented by these two lines, and He can dwell eminently with all created beings. Now, pause, and I'll give you the rest of the quotation in a second. The greatness of God is that while He is and remains transcendent, He can condescend and dwell, as it were, within the circle of what has been created. He can dwell in the circle while remaining who He is. And here's what he says in the next sentence. Without losing himself, God can give himself. And while absolutely maintaining his immutability, he can enter into an infinite number of relations to his creatures. Now reflect on that for a moment. Without losing himself, that is, without any modification in his immutable triune being, God can give himself to creatures in a potentially infinite number of relations, dwell with them, give himself to them, while absolutely maintaining his immutability. That phrase is critical. God absolutely remains immutable in relation to the creature, and his greatness is not that he can somehow change himself and take on mutable, contingent, temporal, composite properties in the work of creation in order to become relatable to creatures. That's Dorner's view. But Bavink is saying, no, the majestic greatness of God is that he can relate to the creature without losing himself and while maintaining his absolute immutability. So, here's a formulaic way of putting it. God's act of condescension is not an event of divine self-transformation. The condescension of God to relate to creatures occasions no essential or personal change in God. Pace, Dorner. This is a glorious mystery to grasp. But now listen, it gets more specific. Listen to how concrete Bavink is. And he and Van Til have in view the formulations of Dorner. Um, I'll give you the, the Dorner quotes later, their reference to Dorner later, but listen. He says, in fact, now being more specific, God's 
incomprehensible greatness and by implication the glory of the Christian confession are precisely that God, though immutable in himself, can call mutable creatures into being. Though eternal in himself, God can nevertheless enter into time. And though immeasurable in himself, he can fill every cubic inch of space with his presence. Now just stop there for a moment. What is being said? When you think of creation as consisting in time and space, what Bavink is saying is that God can enter into time without himself being temporal. He can enter into space without himself being spatial or measurable. He says, in other words, though he himself is absolute being, God can give to transient beings a distinct existence of their own. But in God's eternity, there exists not a moment of time, in his immensity, not a speck of space, in his being, no sign of becoming. Conversely, it is God who posits the creature. Eternity that posits time, immensity which posits space, being which posits to come, becoming, immutability which deposits change. There is nothing intermediate between these two classes of categories. A deep chasm separates God's being from all creatures. Let's take that in reverse order. There is, according to Bobbing, no intermediate quality or class or reality between God and the creature. There's no tertium quid. There's no third thing that somehow relates the creator to the creature. There is a deep chasm that separates God's being from all other creatures. That's the creator-creature distinction. Bavik's point is that the creator-creature distinction is maintained without modification in the relation of revelation. When God condescends to reveal himself in space and time, God enters time as eternal without himself becoming temporal. He fills every cubic inch of space as immense without himself becoming spatial. He relates to mutable creatures without himself becoming mutable. And in all of the relation, this is the key, listen, in all of the relation of God to the creature, in every pluriform feature of his relations, in all their manifold fullness, there is not a moment of time, a speck of space, or a sign of becoming in the self-contained, living, absolute triune God in his revelation. The triune God is not determined in any way as he relates to the creature, he's impassable. He does not change in any way as he relates to the creature, he's immutable. And this remains the case as he is freely determined authentically to relate himself and reveal himself to the creature in condescension. That's Bavink's point. Bavink says then there's nothing intermediate between the creator and the creature, and there is no reciprocal, mutual determination. Do you hear the antithesis? This is an antithesis. Bavink versus Dorner and the Mutualist. This is an antithesis of different religious conceptions of God. Bavink is saying that 
When God relates to the creature, he gives himself without at any point being determined by the creature. And so his doctrine of divine condescension, by which living and immutable Trinitarian persons enter into the lockstep movements of time and indwell every crevice of space, that is the doctrine of condescension and revelation. Best way I know to state the mysterious relation is that God, in, in, a, in a series of statements, is this. God, or let me back up and say this before we, we, we um, move further. How then do we relate that anthropomorphic language where temporal language and concepts are used to describe this God who himself does not partake of the attributes or qualities of the creature because a deep chasm separates God's being, and there's no intermediate category. How then does this mutable, created language and conceptual form of anthropomorphic language, anthropomorphism, how does it render the immutability of God? Well, we could say something like this. God is not ontologically temporal, yet anthropomorphic language portrays his acts in temporal phenomenological terms. God is not ontologically spatial, yet anthropomorphic language describes his acts in spatial phenomenal terms. His glory fills the heaven temple in space and time. His glory descends from heaven and fills the Eden mountain, or the tabernacle with Moses, or the temple with Solomon. But God is not ontologically temporal. He is not ontologically spatial. He's not ontologically mutable, yet the language of the Bible depicts his acts in mutable phenomenological terms. So what do we do with this? We say the locus of the mystery is that the mutable created phenomenon deployed in anthropomorphic language renders the work of the immutable triune God because God has ordered such language to disclose his being and his works to creatures. Without losing himself, God can give himself, and while absolutely maintaining his immutability, he can enter into an infinite number of relations with creatures. Now, let me give you a specific example here of how this revelation relates to anthropomorphic language. Blavink gives us a concrete example of anthropomorphic language from Genesis 3.9, situating his formulation in light of such texts as Psalm 139.4 and 147.5 that teach God's exhaustive, definite foreknowledge of all the free actions of rational creatures. Bavink cites God calling out to Adam, where are you in Genesis 3.9? Here's the question. How does an inquiry a revelation of God in time, how does that inquiry, God revealing himself in time, speaking to Adam in the garden, how does that inquiry regarding the location of Adam and Eve cohere with God's divine omniscience? Bavink expounds as follows. He says, in addition, God is conscious and knows all things outside of his being. Scripture nowhere even hints that anything could be unknown to him. True, the manner in which he obtains knowledge is sometimes stated in striking anthropomorphic language, but he nevertheless knows everything. The notion that something should be unknown to him is dismissed as absurd. Genesis 
Thus, while scripture portrays God inquiring into the location of our first parents, anthropomorphic language, just like we ask people, you ask your children at home, where are you if they're hiding in the backyard? God uses that language, where are you? Boving's point is that Genesis 3.9 and the scripture that interprets it, nowhere even hints of divine ignorance. So, while Scripture deploys striking anthropomorphic language in Genesis 3-9 regarding God's manner of obtaining knowledge, it would be absurd to take anthropomorphic language to imply any form of divine ignorance. Let me put it most basically. When God reveals Himself as the immutable triune Creator, His being doesn't change and His knowledge isn't limited. He is immutable in his being and omniscient in his relation to the creature. Genesis 3.9 cannot in any sense be leveraged to teach the doctrine of divine ignorance in God's covenantal relation to creation. Now, the triune God, according to Bavink, and Van Til is going to follow him here, is at no point determined by the creature and undergoes no reciprocal change with the creature, yet the scripture presents his condescension and the acts that proceed from it in the language and concepts deployed by the changing creature. And that is the point where so many are tempted to go the way of Dorner and Bart and the mutualists and the correlativists. But What is Bavink's formula? Anthropomorphic language forbids us ascribing change to God in his condescension and self-revelation. He enters into time as eternal, into space as omnipresent. He enters into the changing situations and relations of the creature while being himself metaphysically, ontologically immutable, but he does so as the living and true self-contained God. An entirely different religious conception than you find in the theology of Dorner. Now, it's this context that is absolutely indispensable as we move to consider Van Til's doctrine of revelation from the divine side and what Van Til called fearless anthropomorphism. And Van Til uses Bavink to correct Dorner and promote a robust reformed alternative of the immutability of the triune God in his voluntary condescension to the creature to relate in a religious relation under covenant.